Um, so here we go, back into our series, uh, short stories. Uh, Jesus uh, tells about his kingdom, about his reign and rule and his identity as God and King. And this week, we're going to see another parable. And if you remember how we started the series, parable just means to lay alongside of, right? And so what Jesus does is he takes truths about his kingdom, um, he takes doctrine and orthodoxy, and then he just lays them down with short stories. Lays them down with kind of word pictures and illustrations that help us understand who he is and what he calls us to. And now, why this is really important, if you missed last week, it's important to go back, is because you and I, religious or not, regardless of what we even believe about Jesus, we live within a story. We all tell ourselves stories about what's valuable, about what's worth our life, about what's going to give us happiness. We, we have competing narratives and culture that float around, that, that invite us to be embedded in story, right? So it's really important. And Jesus shows up and tells an alternative counter story to every other story that you and I could tell ourselves. And this week, he's going to tell two more parables, two more short stories, specifically about the kingdom of God. And he's going to say, the kingdom of God is like... Right? And most of his parables are about the kingdom of God, but there's several where he literally will say, the kingdom of God is like, and then he fills in the blank with a word picture, with a symbol, whatever it is that he wants to draw our attention to. Now, the context here is important because, and we've talked about this, when Jesus shows up, when Jesus is born and lives his life, there is no king. There's no kingdom of Israel. There hasn't been a king of the Jews for 600 years. The Jews are a cultural and religious minority within this monstrous Roman Empire, right? And so we're already sensing a, a, it's just kind of this feeling of displacement because the Jewish people waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the king, waiting for the one to come to rescue them and save them, this has been a long time waiting. And then Jesus arrives and says, I'm the king, I'm Lord. I'm God, right? And there's a, there's a, it's really important because all of the gospels stress this, but we miss it if we don't kind of like look at it. So I'll just give you the beginning of Matthew and I'll give you the beginning of Mark. But in Jesus's um, biographies, these gospel biographies, they stress this all the time. It's everywhere. Matthew 1.1, Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now the son of David is used 17 times throughout the New Testament to refer to Jesus and it's specifically speaking about him being the heir to the throne of David. But it's not just a geopolitical throne. It's a forever throne. There's several prophecies about the one who's going to come. The Davidic son that is going to come and have a forever kingdom for all people for all time. That's quite the claim. It's a royal manifesto when Matthew starts his gospel like that. It's, it's him hyperlinking us back in time to show us that this is a kingdom that is going to go forward in time. And nothing and no one can stop it because the king is here. It's bold. In Mark 1.1, it says that Mark, Mark's writing his gospel and he says, I'm writing this about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. That right there is a signal again that he's writing his biography about Jesus, not to just tell us cool historical things about this Jew, this Jewish rabbi in Palestine. He's not, not doing that. He's saying, actually, this is a manifesto because Caesar is not the Son of God, Jesus is. It's a radically political statement in that day. It's the same thing that gets Jesus executed. It's not that he was running around helping poor people. That's like, now let's get rid of that guy. That's bad. It's that he showed up and said, Caesar is not Lord. He is not God in the flesh. I am. 
So it's very, very radical. So every time Jesus talks about his kingdom, he's, he's showing us that this is the rightful context to understand when he says things about the nature of his kingdom. And last, we use the word gospel, right? We say it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel, the good news, right, is what it means. It's actually a technical term that was used to announce the inauguration of a new king. And it was good news, there would be pamphlets sent out to announce gospel news throughout the land about a battle that has been won. So even our use of the word gospel implies a hyperlink over to the kingdom of God and what it means to understand the reign and rule of God over all things. Very, very, very important. So Jesus uses two parables to say what the kingdom of God is like. Now, before we look at what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, how would you fill in the blank? The kingdom of God is like. Now remember that parables are intentionally a bit backwards and upside down. And he does it all the time to make his message accessible to those who normally it wouldn't be and inaccessible to those who think they've got everything figured out. But for me, if I was just like the kingdom of God is like, I'd be like the kingdom of God is like a castle an impenetrable fortress with a moat around it of boiling water and crocodiles, right? Like, like you were just thinking something epic, right? It's like the forest fires of California. It's just no one can stop them and they keep coming back, right? The kingdom of God is like Apple, this global enterprise that just takes over the tech industry and tells us that if we don't have the next Apple device, then you are subhuman, right? There's so many things that we could do. This week I was just like, I kept going back to William Wallace and Braveheart. The kingdom of God is like William Wallace and Braveheart, right? There's so many amazing epic things that we could fill in the blank with. And Jesus does none of them. Watch what Jesus says. Matthew 13, verse 31. And he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard. It's like a mustard seed that a man took and he sowed in the field. Again, so mundane, so ordinary. It's like, well, that, but that's what you do with mustard seeds. You go, you go and sow it in the field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and it actually becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and they make nests in its branches. Secondly, moves on. He told them another parable because they're sitting there looking at him going, What? So he tries again, told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, fermented bread that a woman took and hid three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So all of the epic things I just came up with about the kingdom of God, Jesus goes, everyone's here, thank you for coming. My kingdom is like mustard and fermenting bread. <laughs> So remember the strangeness and the paradox last week of the kingdom of God is like a farmer going out and sowing seed in four different places. And everyone's like, okay. This is doing the exact same thing. And Jesus is doing this on, pur on purpose because he wants us to lean in. And he wants those who think it's ridiculous to lean out. And he's doing this intentionally to separate authentic followers, authentic disciples, authentic people that belong to the kingdom and want to from those who are already happy building their own kingdom. And what these two things have in common is that they are so mundane, they're so ordinary, 
they're so unnoticeable and insignificant at the beginning, yet when they do what they do, they have huge, huge impact. And that's exactly his point. That the kingdom of God is found far more in the normal, ordinary, everyday stuff of life, yet has the power to change the world, and it has. That's what he's saying about the kingdom of God. Now, two things about the mustard seed and and the leaven. The mustard seed in ancient Palestine, in the ancient world, it was the smallest seed planted around where Jesus was. So a lot of people just like, uh, it's not the smallest seed, therefore the Bible is false, therefore, right? It's like, read your Bible properly, right? What Jesus is saying, it's like, it's the smallest seed that we know of, yet look how big it grows, right? And so it's about one millimeter in diameter. So if I held one up here, you wouldn't even be able to see it, yet when a mustard seed grows to the full size of the tree, it can reach up to 12 feet tall. One millimeter to 12 feet tall. And not only is it a very resilient type of plant, but also the root system underground is even bigger than what we see above ground. It's it's an amazing amount of growth that we see in the mustard seed. Secondly, when he says leaven, that's not, it's not yeast, okay? It's not the same. I know some English translations will say yeast. Leaven was different. Leaven was a small bit of fermenting dough that was mixed into larger batches of bread to make it rise, to make it bread. And although there were bakers and bakeries in the ancient world, the most bread was baked and made in the context of a communal oven. And so this is why it stresses that a woman, a mom, a wife, right, someone who just kind of like not usually in the public scene in that culture, brought the smallest little, little ball of, of leaven, and it ended up Three measures, he says, that's enough bread to feed 100 people. So it's something that's so insignificant, just, a, just a, a woman coming to make some bread, right? A mom coming to make some bread for her family, whatever it is. In that context, Jesus is saying, oh, no, no, but that's actually going to feed the entire community. And same with the mustard seed. Birds come and sit up in the branches from this one millimeter seed that started in the ground. So what do they have in common? Well, they both have very small very insignificant beginnings and have transforming power and growth that you can't actually imagine. And Jesus says, this is what my kingdom is like. I love that. I love that there's something so ordinary about how God makes his rule and reign known throughout the world. That for you and I as normal, ordinary people who don't think we have very much to offer, that God actually just completely revels in using ordinary people so that he can flex and do amazing things. And he's saying, that is what my kingdom is like. Now, why this is important is because even Jesus' own life, church, couldn't have been more normal. It couldn't have been more ordinary in every way as far as human terms are concerned. Jesus, a Jewish kid, born out of wedlock to a poor teenage mom in a barn in some backwater town of Bethlehem, and his hometown is Nazareth, which, what good can come from Nazareth? Right, comes from a a place, his hometown is the spot where it's just like, nothing comes good out of there. no No one good comes out of that. Then as a Jewish boy, he went, he studied the Torah, he became a rabbi, very common. Then he trained apprentices, and then he tried to start a revolution, and the Roman Empire killed him. There's hundreds of versions of that story. Tons of people did that in Jesus' context. One historian I read this week said, in the first century, there could be nothing, 
more seemingly insignificant than a Jewish man from a small corner of Palestine being murdered by crucifixion. Like, it's, it's, it's just, it's normal. I mean, for us, it's like, well, that's, that's barbaric, that's crazy, we don't, right? But that, that's normal. That's what the Romans did. Like, that's, that's how they made their power known as they expanded their empire. That's just what they, they did. Okay, so that's Jesus. But let's even talk about who Jesus spent his time with. As a Jewish rabbi, who he even went after and invited to come along and be his apprentices, to actually come and do an internship with Jesus. He goes and he intentionally ignores all the PhDs at rabbi school, right? All the ones at the cream of the crop schools. And he recruits apprentices from this ragtag group of fishermen, ex-tax collectors and traders, and ex-Antifa political zealots. And then goes and spends all of his time pouring into them and hanging out with women, lepers, sinners, sex workers, the homeless, and beggars. What? No rabbi worth his salt, no self-proclaimed royalty would be caught dead around the kind of commoners that Jesus aligned himself with. It is so backwards. It's so normal. It's so ordinary, yet it's so upside down, and that's what he says his kingdom is like. So now I know in our day, we gotta, we gotta be careful because it's like, so you're telling me that Jesus didn't maximize his impact by recruiting all of the cultural influencers to grow his platform? He did none of that. He intentionally did the opposite of that. Everything that we think about marketing strategies and entrepreneurial acumen, he did the opposite. And here we are. Here we are. A kingdom that has and continues to expand to the end of the earth and will never stop expanding and will never stop, stop growing, and will never stop transforming lives and nations and people groups. Never. And it's not a surprise when we look at this, because in Revelation 7, we're told that there will be a number of people, a multitude that no one could ever count that is going to be a part of this kingdom. And it started with this Jewish man in that context doing the most ordinary things, yet doing something truly extraordinary as well. And he says, this is what my kingdom is like. And again, I, I align with the disciples a lot because, I mean, I'm a moron, right? Like them. And so, so often the disciples don't get it. Over and over again, they're like, so, we believe you. Like, we, we believe that you are who you say you are. We've seen what you do. When are you going to take over? Right? Like, when are you going to boot Rome out of here and establish the kingdom? Right? James and John show up and they're like, so, when you do that, am I sitting at the left or the right? Right? Like... Because, again, in their mind, they, they've got an idea of what revolution looks like. They've got an idea of what the king is going to be like. They have an idea and prophecies that they've interpreted to mean that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to do what he does. And he's going to come and he's going to get rid of these oppressive powers and he's finally going to establish himself on the throne. And they couldn't have been more wrong because Jesus didn't come to do that. He came to establish a kingdom that is like a mustard seed, and that is like leaven that is promised to actually go to the ends of the earth. They were looking for a Davidic king to come sit on a throne in that geographical political situation. And he came to say, no, no, my kingdom is far greater and far bigger than that. My mission is way, way bigger than you can imagine. So Jesus shows up on the scene, throws everybody off, not just Rome, but throws all of his disciples off. And he says, hey, the Savior's here. The king's here. But you won't find him in a palace. He's not after power here because he already has all power and authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth. 
He's not here to force his subjects into submission, but he's here to serve and invite all people into the upside down kingdom of his mercy and grace. It's radical, it's backwards. Jesus said, the son of man, a divine title, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, unheard of. Royalty doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. But this God does. The true God does. This is something about the, the heart and posture of God that Jesus encapsulates and continues to push on throughout his entire life. And of course, ultimately in his life, in his crucifixion and his resurrection, of course. But this is what's so amazing is that he goes against all conventional wisdom, right? He goes against all kind of marketing strategies and, and intentionally goes after people on the fringes. Goes after ordinary people. Why? Here's, and this is important. Because that's where most people are. <laughs> most people are normal. <laughs> you with me on that? Like, like on the fringes, kind of navigating, trying to figure out what in the world I'm doing here. Like that, that's, that's normal. That, that's ordinary. They're, they're on the fringes, feeling like they really don't have much to offer. Nothing world shattering, that's for sure. I'm no Elon Musk. Right, and you just go down the list. I'm no so-and-so, I'm no so-and-so. And then we get locked in this comparison game of how normal I am. And then guess what? We're told that we shouldn't be. We're told that we should be somebody, not nobodies. We're told that if we're normal and ordinary and we live a faithful, quiet life, that we don't actually matter, that we're not actually valued and valuable. We have entire platforms on the internet used to prop up how amazing people are. We just saw another very well-known pastor fall this week to an affair. How many more are we gonna have when we put platforms under people that are not God and then worship them and give ourselves to them and emulate them like they are God and then watch them fall and watch us fail? But we're told that we should be somebody because if we're not, we're nobody. And this is all the world can offer you. This is all they can offer you is a superficial definition of the somebodies and the nobodies. And then you do all of these things. You gotta do this and you gotta do that to fit into the somebody category because if you don't, you are nobody. And what our culture does and what our world is always and only gonna do because it's all they can do is celebrate and elevate the most educated, the most intelligent, the most charismatic, the ones with the most personality, the most talented, the most beautiful, the most rich, and the most powerful. That's all they can do because that's all they have. That is the kingdom for them. And it's the only kingdom they're ever going to enjoy. And that's constantly what Jesus is pushing on. He's saying, if you live for what you have here, it is all you're going to have. It's radical. And then God shows up in the flesh as a human being and then goes after the human beings who are on the fringes and are ordinary and overlooked and nobodies. You know why? Because God doesn't go after the rich and the powerful and the talented and the beautiful. God uses the most willing, the most needy, the most humble. God doesn't call the most gifted people. He gifts the people he calls. And that is the kingdom of God. And you remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus shows up, and he preaches that amazing, it's this royal manifesto that he preaches about what his kingdom is gonna look like. And then he goes, blessed are, and again, another fill in the blank. It's like, oh, okay, hashtag blessed. I can tell you what blessed is. My culture tells me, I can tell you what blessed looks like. 
I can tell you, Jesus shows up and goes, blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit, the, those who mourn, who cry, cry, have real pain, real, real darkness behind closed doors that they're wrestling with, real hurt, those ones, the ones who mourn. And the meek, <laughs> like, like the gentle, not the most driven, not the most beautiful, not the most airbrushed, not the ones with the most followers. And he calls them blessed. But we exchange this tragic, tragic exchange of health and wealth and happiness and beauty and call it the good life. And Jesus shows up and says, it's not the good life. The blessed are not the rich and the famous. The blessed are not the attractive and the intelligent, but the so-called unsuccessful. The so-called, the ones that have the really, really crummy beginning to their story. It's those ones. The outsiders. The ones that are hurting. The insecure. The overlooked. The uncelebrated. Those ones are a part of my kingdom. Crazy. So here's the point. The kingdom of God is so extraordinary. And it is. Why? Because it's full of ordinary people. The kingdom of God is so amazing because it's full of people that aren't apart from the work of God. The Apostle Paul is probably my favorite version of this in the New Testament um, next to Stephen in the book of Acts. Like talk about ordinariness, right, in, in so many ways. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 26 through 20, 28, here's what Paul says about this reality. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, talking to followers of Jesus. Okay, so remember, don't forget that few of you are wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. So he's reminding them how normal they are. Remember, in the world's standards, you're so normal. You're so easy to overlook, according to the world's standards. Instead, <laughs> I love that, God cho chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think that they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, completely overlooked, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Man, how much would that radically change our ordinariness and our day-to-day -day life and the normal stuff like sitting with our kids and eating a meal and going on a date night with our spouse and drinking a nice glass of whatever fermented fruit or grain you like or unfermented, whatever. Like, like the, the glory of God is found in those ordinary, normal places, in those ordinary, normal moments, and that is where the reign and rule of God is made available. That's what makes it so extraordinary, is that we don't have to become somebody in order to know the one that we were made for. That actually, it's the opposite. It's coming to the end of our self-rule and reign that God enters the picture and can do something with us. And our entire culture is only ever going to tell us to prop ourselves up and to make more of ourself. Our culture is built on self. And Jesus shows up and he says, seek first the kingdom, the ordinary kingdom, and everything else is yours. Everything else. Our culture comes at us, and every other major world religion Every other philosophy of man that we can make up has self at the center. Always does, always has, always will. It has self at the center. That is where everything should go, and that's where everything stems from. The gospel of the kingdom shows up and has self-denial at the center. 
And church, if you pay attention, you see it everywhere. Self-help, self-determination, self-esteem, self-empowerment, self-love, and self-righteousness is the constant message on the teleprompter of our culture. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And not only is it outside of us everywhere, it's inside of us too. You know why? Because we want to be king. We want to be queen. We want to reign and rule over our own destiny. We want to be in control. We want to trick ourselves into being sovereign and in control of all things. You know what God does? He lovingly allows things that are outside of our control to happen, to humble us, so that we may actually enter into the kingdom of God. Beautiful. So, So church, where culture says, you can do anything. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Where culture says, live your truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Where culture says, live your life, YOLO, you only live once. Jesus says, lose your life, you'll find it, and you'll live forever. Culture says, be yourself, follow your heart. Jesus says, die to self and follow me. Culture says, you were born that way, whatever way you were born, so just live how you feel. Jesus says, you must be born again if you were to actually experience true life. Culture says, you are enough. Jesus says, my grace is enough. Be weak and let me be enough. Culture says, I am strong, I am rich, I am healthy. Oprah literally gets you to repeat this mantra. Jesus says, but I came for the weak, the poor, the sick, and the broken. I came for sinners, not people who say that they're strong and rich and healthy. Church, it couldn't be more backwards than the narrative that we hear, than the stories that we're told. And the kingdom of God is only so extraordinary because it's ordinary people making much of this amazing God. Because we have nothing to offer small piece of fermented bread, a tiny little mustard seed, but the good news is that's all we need. That's all we need to experience and being caught up and raptured into the beauty and growth and expansion and power of the kingdom of God. Some of you wrestle with this like crazy. And what Paul just said is, you gotta lean into your ordinariness if God is gonna do anything with you. Isn't that wild? And just before that, a few verses before that, he says the word of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness to people who are perishing. That word is where we get moron. That the gospel is moronic. It's ridiculous for people who don't know and haven't experienced the power of it. But to those who have experienced it, we are unashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. So backwards, so upside down. A little bit later in 1 Corinthians, Paul says it again, last example. But he says it again, he says, the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk, but in power. And just before that, he just bashed his preaching ability. Like Paul shows up, he's like, so when I showed up, I didn't really like speak to you eloquently. I wasn't even a good speaker. I didn't come and I didn't preach very well. Uh, And here you are, this is awesome, right? I think this is really impacting our churches today too. Because again, we just go and elevate the cutest, the ones with the nicest denim jackets, the ones with the biggest platforms and the biggest personalities. And then they have no character, they have no integrity, and it breaks us. And then we're surprised when we get on this hamster wheel and do it again, over and over again. Why? Because the kingdom of God exists in talk, Dustin. That's what it exists in. No, 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 it exists in power, real power in broken people. 
That's how God flexes. That's how God gets his glory and his fame and his name made much of through people who are not trying to make much of their own. Jared Wilson ran into this this week. He wrote this, talking specifically to our evangelical thing, this evangelifish thing. He says, we want to see the kingdom unstoppable and unfathomable. And so logically, the emphasis in the evangelical church is on bigness. Big programs, big churches, big people. Obsession with production, with coolness, and with cultural credibility. We forget that Jesus is looking for losers. And what we end up revealing is that our, fu- our fundamental distrust in the gospel. There are only so many God at the movies and television show tie-ins that you can do before you have to stop calling yourself innovative and relevant. The world will always do entertainment better than we can, but it will never have what only we have. Where does our faith rest? Our faith must, brothers and sisters, rest in the transforming power of the kingdom of God and the gospel of that kingdom. Not manufacturing anything out of our own power, but allowing mustard seeds to be mustard seeds and leaven to be leaven. I just love that Jesus does this because he constantly comes at us and says, self-denial is how you find yourself. Saying goodbye to this life and not holding on to it is how you find life. Jesus shows up and he says, the cross comes before the crown. Thorns come before the throne. And today in our churches, in our churches, instead of follow Jesus, pick up your cross, die to yourself, and go live life to the fullest, we hear follow Jesus, he'll fix you, he'll insulate you from pain and suffering, he'll bless you, and he'll make you your best self. Church, the lie in that is that it's only half true. And half-truths are full lies. And they're some of the most dangerous. New life in the kingdom of God is only for those who die to their old life. Are you with me on that? I had to get one in. Resurrection, new life is only for the crucified. And that's what makes Jesus' kingdom so radical yet so powerful. Because a king hanging on the cross with a sign above his head, mocking his claim to be king, That was all well and good until three days later when the king actually triumphed over death, which no king, no empire, no ruler ever can and ever will. So so just hear me when we talk about the kingdom. There's lots of implications of it. We could, you know, we really spend the rest of our life parsing out what it means, right? We really do into all sectors and domains of society for sure. But Jesus didn't come to earth to reign as king. Jesus came to earth to show you and I that we're not. And so the tension is, it means that we don't think too highly of ourselves, but we also don't think too low of ourselves and what God might do with the little bit that we have. It's a beautiful tension that we live in. And that God actually does want to be huge. <laughs> like he wants to be huge in you. He wants to be huge in your life. He wants to do huge things through you. More of him, less of you. Make much of himself for his glory and your good. That's the best and truest news ever. One of my favorite preachers of all time, Charles Spurgeon, you know how he was saved? Like we call him the prince of preachers because arguably he's one of the best preachers who will ever live. He was saved 
from some no-name sermon from some layperson. And that day, a very normal sermon, a very normal person preached probably a pretty bad normal sermon, and Charles Spurgeon was saved. And God, that's one example. I mean, I, can, I don't have time. There's so many examples of God doing this over history. And this is what the kingdom of God does. This is what the kingdom of God wants to do. This is what the king wants to do in ordinary people like you and me. With flaws, with brokenness, with weaknesses, with nothing really much to bring and make something of them. And it, and it, and it goes just from individuals also to the church though. Like, the, like Reach Montreal, like this little thing, like the 20 of us in the room, you know, with nothing like fancy. I'm just up here yelling, sweating. Like, like God is working. Like God is working in the life of our church. People are meeting Jesus. People are growing in their love for Jesus. People are repenting of sin. People are wanting to go and live their life on mission for God and not on mission for nonsense. That's the kingdom of God. One commentator I saw this week said this way, the kingdom penetrates and permeates until its influence takes over. This is what happens to an individual when he or she submits to the rule of God. God is not satisfied to have a part of a person's life. He wants the whole thing. So as the spirit does his kingdom work in the believer, his influence spreads to every part of their life, mind and body, work and play, worship and outreach, family and friends. That's how the kingdom of God spreads. In the smallness, in the ordinariness, in the normal things of everyday life. And this seemingly unimpressive yet unstoppable kingdom is expanding and will never stop. And here's what I want to do. I want to just paint a picture of what this looks like and what it has looked like. The Egyptian empire is gone. The Assyrian empire is gone. The Babylonian, the Persian, the Ottoman, and the Roman empires, they're all gone, never to come back. The kingdom of God is bigger and healthier than ever, expanding across the globe, and it will never stop. There is no cultural, ethnic, or linguistic barrier for the kingdom of God. There is no international border that can slow down the spread of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And like I said, Revelation 7, we're heading to a great multitude of tongues, tribes, nations, and people that no one could number if they tried. You think counting ballots is hard. Imagine trying counting that. You couldn't. You couldn't count it. That's the work of the kingdom of God. Now, this is a really important, church, historically to understand because if Christianity stayed local in the Middle East and stayed Jewish, then Jesus was wrong. Okay? Stay with me. He was wrong, and not only was he wrong, but he wasn't God. But the gospel starts in the Middle East, spreads to North Africa and West Asia. If you look at all the first century church fathers, they're not white dudes. They're African and Asian. We got to correct that. Then it gets to Southern Europe, India, and then finally to the Americas. So any claim that Christianity is the white man's religion is the most ignorant, ahistorical claim ever because it's not even close. And globally, it's not close. White people, we don't have the corner lot on it. I'm sorry. We don't. We're outnumbered, baby. And we're always going to be. And I love it. Because we need to be reminded of that. <laughs> Christianity is truly a global, transcultural, translinguistic world religion. Nothing else is. Buddhism, Islam, and Judaism are all still limited and localized to one culture and place. Not Christianity, not the gospel, not to mention the gospel thriving in the most hostile environments. 
China tries to make it illegal, burn Bibles, kill people. We have more Christians in China than anywhere else in the world right now. Communist China and Russia tries to squash Christianity and it grows. South Korea, West Africa, Central America, Cuba, name it, on and on and on. Every time we start locking Christians up, silencing them, killing them and jailing them, guess what happens? The kingdom of God spreads. Like Justin Martyr said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How do you squash a movement and go around and kill people that aren't afraid of dying? It's like, oh, oh, your best is kill me. Oh, <laughs> right? Like, like honestly, I mean, we, don't, we don't get this in the West. For Paul to say to live as Christ and to die is gain, we're like, no, it's not. Like to live is gain, because look at my life, look at all the stuff I have. Not the kingdom. Not the kingdom. It's the best you can do, death, because our king rose from death. Like, that, that's what you're going to do to us? Oh, man, go ahead, have at it. I'll just go meet Jesus. Like, that's awesome. It doesn't make us masochistic, but it definitely frees us from the nonsense of the world. Amen? And although we don't feel it sometimes, I got to say this. Although we don't feel it sometimes, according to global metrics, like, just hear me. I'm not making this up. The world has never been better. I know some of our eschatology doesn't tell us that because we're waiting for the tribulation. We're waiting for all sorts of things to happen before Jesus can return. I would argue that the mustard seed is growing. I would argue that the kingdom is expanding until the king finally comes and consummates what he started. And so, so what, what we see in global metrics in the data, this is just science. Okay, I'll just give you science. Food, sanitation, life expectancy, poverty, violence, the environment, literacy, equality, and conditions of childhood in the world, globally, it is at an all-time high. Never been better. The global expectancy, life expectancy, went from 31 to 71, and that was just between the 20th and the 21st century. Something got radically quicker about the kingdom of God. And in the last two decades alone, church, we've cut global poverty in half. Global literacy is up from 20% to 85%. Global violence is way down, including homicide, terrorism, war casualties, and abortion rates are at an all-time low and continue to decrease. Why? Because of the kingdom of God. Here's why this is important. Christians have always been at the forefront of civilization's greatest progress and advancement. They're not going to tell you that in school because we have to make much of a godless system and godless people. But let me give you some examples. Science. In the first century, Christians fought to end human sacrifice and infanticide, and they practically ended abortion across different provinces that the church was largest in. And today, we continue to fight for the sanctity of human life like no other. Why? Because we have the message for it that backs it up. Second, we abolished slavery. I don't know, big deal. Go look at all the names, pull all of them, look who they were. All the abolitionists were either Christian leaders or pastors or people that were very familiar with the gospel because it was the fuel that led them to say and be the most prominent voices in the fight against partiality and for the value and worth of image bearers everywhere. Third, women's rights. This is always what makes the ironic feminist critique of Christianity so weird. And we have Christians who are like, I'm a feminist. It's like, ugh. Women's rights and liberation for women from oppressive and abusive systems and situations and giving them equal worth 
and fighting against the trafficking of women, all done by the church. Historically and still today. Fourth, real social justice. Actual social justice. Philanthropy, charities, and the alleviation of poverty and suffering, specifically through the caring of orphans foster in the foster system and adoption. Guess who's leading it? We are. The hospital system and medical care. The fourth century Christian hospitals revolutionized healthcare and still continues to. Science and technology. You can thank Christianity for the modern scientific method. It's the product of Christian thinkers like Galileo and Francis Bacon and Isaac Newton. And the list goes on. Education. The modern university, guess who started it? The church. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all the Ivy Leagues and all the non-Ivy Leagues were started by Christians as Christian institutions to encourage the exploration of the universe because it declares the handiwork of our God. I'll stop, but I don't have to. There's so many examples, church. I'm not even mentioning the contributions of the kingdom of God and kingdom people in art, in the arts, in architecture, in politics, in literature, in music, and in philosophy. For the last 2,000 years, the kingdom has been expanding and will continue to expand by normal people like you and me. Three quarters of Nobel Peace Prizes, Nobel Prizes, period, across all disciplines, all Nobel Prize laureates were given to Christians. Three quarters. Like, that's not, like, that's mind-blowing. Why? Because we're all ordinary people who put our life into the hands of a God who is far from ordinary, and he does something with us. Let me leave you with a biblical example and just track this with you. In Acts 1, his very normal disciples show up, Jesus was dead and now he's alive. So they're already kind of like, uh-oh, I don't know what to do with that because dead people die and they stay dead. So they're talking to Jesus and Jesus says to them in Acts 1, they ask him, when are you going to restore the kingdom of God? Again, same question they've always been asking, right? So, so when are you going to do this thing, right, Jesus? He's standing there, having been dead and now he's alive and they're still asking him when he's going to do the kingdom thing. Amazing. They're so daft and it's so great, right? And Jesus answers and he says, you will receive power. You. And you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You're going to do it. It's going to be you. So, so they're asking, when is he going to do the kingdom thing? And he's like, oh, no, no you missed it. I did, I did that thing already so that you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Church, if you just look at a map from Jerusalem to here, like we're already at the ends of the earth. You with me on that? Right, like, that's the end. we shouldn't know this, but we only know it because of faithful men and women who have entered into the kingdom of God. And the small beginnings, the kingdom of God with these small beginnings and seemingly unnoticeable origin expands with transforming power as the gospel spreads, as sinners are saved, as people turn from self-rule to trust in God's rule in Christ and enter into the grace of the kingdom of God. And what Luke does throughout the book of Acts, I love it. I'll show them to you rapid fire real quick. But what Luke does throughout the book of Acts is he carefully tracks the expansion of this. The movement of the gospel, right? So Jesus promises it's going to go local, national, global. And then Luke just organizes the rest of Acts to show us that it's already doing it. Then, 
Not, not even talking about now. He starts and he says, well, there's 11 disciples who made it. One of them took a different route. 11 disciples, then quickly we have 120 in the upper room. Then we got 3,000 after Peter's Holy Spirit-filled sermon in chapter 2 in the book of Acts. Then we end up with 5,000 men, that means families, so there's about 25,000 people who come to know Jesus and the gospel. By chapter 4 in the book of Acts, within 50 days of Jesus' resurrection, Jerusalem is already 4% Christian. That's more than Quebec. We're not even 4% Christian. Within 30 years of the resurrection, Paul is in Rome. Now, just to give it to you, that's Toronto to Vancouver. He didn't have a plane, didn't have a train or an automobile. That's, how, that's where Paul is. That's, 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 that's just Paul. That's not even talking about what's happening in Africa and Asia and all over the place already. Now, watch what, watch, watch what does it, okay? Watch these. Acts 4. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 6-7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 8-4, those who were scattered went about proclaiming the word. Acts 12-24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Keep going. Acts 13-49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Acts 19-20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So what did the work? The word of God. The gospel of the kingdom is what did the work. Through ordinary, normal, mundane beginnings and ordinary, normal, mundane people. And it continued to increase and it still increases. So what you need more in your life, in the soil of your heart, like we saw last week, is an increase in the word of God. What we need in the church is an increase in the word of God, not platforms and programs and, and, and all these things that, that again, we build our churches on those things. We will not reach people and bring them into the kingdom. We won't. Uh, Martin Luther, German reformer, when he went and nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg Castle door, he didn't think this is gonna start the Reformation. He, he was just doing what he knew he should do because of the word of God. And listen to what he says as he reflects on that. Listen to this. All I did was teach, preach, and write God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. While I have been sleeping or drinking Wittenberg beer with my friend Philip and Amsdorf, great names, it is the word that has done great things. I have done nothing. The word has done and achieved everything. Like he's talking about craft beer with his buddy Amsdorf. Right, like, like what? And, and, and we have the Protestant Reformation. It's the reason why we're here. Like it's the reason why the gospel even got to where it has. So, fast forward. Luke's tracking all this. It's good stuff. And he gets to the end of the book of, that, book of Acts and here's where we'll finish. Gets to the end of Book of Acts. This is the Book of Acts. Okay, this is a big, like, it's like, again, Book of Acts is like Pirates of the Caribbean meets Stranger Things. It's like, it's just an amazing, fast-paced story. It's wildness, right? And we get to the end of the Book of Acts, and here's how Luke finishes the book. So Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, talking about Rome. And he welcomed all people who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You know what I keep doing? I keep going like to turn the page because I'm like, and then what? Right? Because that's not a good ending. You with me on that? Like, if that was a movie, you'd be like, 
terrible, rotten tomatoes, like rotten, right? Like you just, terrible, zero stars, awful. Because there's no, there's no ending there. What's the reason? Well, because Luke's writing of the story stops, but he's showing us that the story itself still goes on. That the rest of the story is still unwritten. That you and I are invited to play a role in the grand story of the kingdom of God. The best and truest story ever. The gospel story. The people of God living out the mission of God by the power of God. That's why Luke can stop where he does. Because we serve a story writing God. We serve a story changing God. We serve a God who absolutely is overjoyed by taking ordinary people and doing something powerful with them. So what does that mean for you and I? Well, it means that's us. And we're invited into it. The invitation isn't for us to come and be awesome and bring all of the amazing things we have. It's to come and say, all I have is a little bit of fermented bread. All I have is a tiny mustard seed. And God says, that's all you need because I am sufficient for you. And I'm gonna take the things that you don't think are even significant in you. And if you allow me to, I'm gonna make much of myself. So church, the kingdom is now. The kingdom is, is now because the king is alive. Like Christ is risen and his word still expands and grows and transforms not only individually in our heart, but through society and culture that, that has different words. So let me pray. And I'm gonna pray specifically for exactly this. For the kingdom of God to come. For God's will to be done in Montreal as it is in heaven. Join me as I pray. Father, we're broken, weak, normal people. So much of our culture tells us that if we don't become somebody for ourselves, that we're nobody. But the good news of the gospel is that you actually come for the nobodies. That you are overjoyed to use people who really think they have nothing to bring. So Lord, today I just pray that the posture of our heart would be one that we would come with open hands and empty pockets. With our ordinariness. And that we would give it to you as an offering. That we would present our whole life as a living sacrifice to you. And that Jesus, you would do something in us. You would do something in all of the churches across our city that ultimately are faithfully proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom. And that you would grow and expand and continue to multiply disciples and that the kingdom of God would come in Montreal as it is in heaven. We ask that you would start here. We ask that you would start in us, in our heart, and that, Lord, you would be able to have us look back and be in awe of who you are and be in awe of what you have done. We love you and we truly do need you. And we ask these things in the name that is only ever going to matter. In Jesus' name, amen.